Peace, Vermont. Can you hear me? So I, I'm going to try to make this work in a way that will be both lucid and involve the moon. I'm so glad that I was able to, to get here. It was a long weekend, and I hope that during the weekend while I was uh, catering to my daughter, I hope you were getting great work done, because this feels like a place where some really terrific writing could happen and some terrific art could be created. Um, I thought that I would read a couple of poems from uh, Mixology and some poems from The Big Smoke, since you're so kind as to have them here. Thank you again. And then I, I wanted to read some poems from my new book, which I just got like last week. I got the copy and I haven't gotten to read from it yet. So this is what I want to do is read from it and learn a little more about what it means now um, in this version. Some mixology, some Jack Johnson poems, and then some poems from Map to the Stars. Thanks again for, for making this possible. I'm going to read the first poem from, uh, from Mixology, and it uh, was a long time ago. I was a different person when I wrote it. I hadn't given up my dream of wanting to be a rapper yet. And so there's, uh, there are some allusions in it that I think are useful to, un so to understanding the poem. I mentioned um, Danny LaRusso, who was the uh, original karate kid, like the Ralph Macchio karate kid. Um, I mentioned Juan Valdez. Do you know who Juan Valdez is? Okay, all right. So maybe I don't need to, to explain this stuff. All right, so it's called Seven Days of Falling. Today I'm assimilating like margarine into hotcakes. I'm getting down like Danny LaRusso after the against the rules leg sweep. So low, I'll be a flower in common decency's lapel. Factual the way Zanzibar means sea of blacks to anyone who isn't from there. Where is Juan Valdez and his burrow-esque dependability when you need him? I had a homie who mended t-shirts with Juan front and center, an afro instead of a sombrero, a power fist in place of a smile. The inscription, 100% Colombian. I'm going the way of skin. Radio waves and thoughts like ear-to-ear -ear transmissions grinding their way from the mindless space to forgetful earth. Man, my skin, it doesn't need me any more than mold needs cheese. On this day of cellophane lunge boxes and hand grenades reshaping my palms into their own militaristic orbit, someone needs to catalog me. On this day, someone needs to hallmark me. A hall monitor doubled wide by ambition, a goldfish with thumbs hitchhiking toward a fishbowl full of dub. <laughs> so I'm looking at this now. Like I said, I was a different person. I have no idea what I meant by a fishbowl full of dub. But I know at the time I was in it. You know, like I was like, I remember riding it and being just like, yeah, like a fishbowl full of duh. So I'm looking at it now, I'm like, what? Um, so I grew up in Indianapolis, as you're going to hear maybe more than you ever wanted to hear about later. And, um, you know, this is the mid 80s. Rap music wasn't really there. The only way we would get rap uh, was through tapes. So someone's cousin would have a friend who made a tape and then we'd make another tape and we'd make another tape. So we'd have this third generation dub of Run DMC before you could get the records. Um, so when uh, rappers started going on tour, every once in a while they would show up in Indianapolis. And um, I got to see Public Enemy that way really early on. And so this is called Tyndall Armory. And I mentioned a thing called the WAP, which is a dance we used to do back in the 80s. I think they tried to bring it back and call it something else now, but it's always going to be the WAP. Tyndall Armory. 
Public Enemy had no idea of what to do on stage in 1987, but we didn't know what to do as a rap crowd either. Attendance was mandatory, jammed into the Tyndall Armory one night before amateur boxing and one day before bingo. A bunch of homeboys kente together with African medallions and graffiti spray paint jeans. All of us mad at the conspiracy of conspiracy, staring each other down with a circular anger only black men can justify. Terminator X, his one-handed power fist cut and scratch was the only thing keeping the revolution from starting right then. Bass lines and warning sirens transformed into samples refusing the WAP like the black major d' at the Highlands Country Club refused to seat black people. My friend Richard was determined to be the first black president. He refused wine coolers and weed, white women and white lines because a man could hold anything against him during a campaign. As president, he was going to buy Highlands and turn it into a black thing. Terminator X had Rich ready to say peace to the presidency and Nat Turner the first patch of white he saw. And so when Chuck D mugged the stage, his African medallion swinging like left hooks, his baseball cap pulled down so low his eyes were the idea of eyes, the heat in that room was enough to make any Tom reconsider his friendships. So my boy Rich, he was true. He, re he wanted to be the first black president. I mean, clearly he was not, right? Um, but he wanted to be. And... Uh, then he saw what happened to the first black president, and he was like, nah, it's cool. <laughs> you can keep it. I know you all saw those pictures of uh, President Obama and First Lady Obama and walking, looking so, so, looking so fly and so happy. Uh, they, you know, coming out of these, you know, they're coming out of the symphony, they're out of, coming out of the theater, and it was like, oh, come back. Guys, please. All right, so I'm going to read one more from this. Um, you know, I'm th I was going to read a poem about my daughter, so I'll read one from here. I always wanted to be, you know, I am the poet I am, but I always wanted to be some kind of hybrid of like Emily Dickinson and, and Philip Larkin. And <laughs> I never figured out how to do it. Um, but this poem is based after a Philip Larkin poem. Um, it's called This Be the Verse, and it's got an epigraph from Radiohead. It is the 21st century. This is the skin they put me in, my mom and dad. Remixed melanin, oleo for the asthmatic and colorblind. See how it bronzes on command. See how my hybrided daughter looks darker while on the beach with me. If my skin were a chicken wing, I'd lick my eyebrows before coat switching inflections. If my skin were a woman, I'd check my leopard print steering wheel at the door. I'd transform my crust of rust and sea salt into something more 21st century. Borges said things belong to the past quite quickly. So I'd throw some butane on my funk transistors and face paint my brown band-aid convocation and throw my sweaty free South African muscle shirt to the crowd at the recycling bin. I leave it to the ghetto fabulous to ID the magical backspin of skin. And so I figured out when I was writing, I don't know, y'all remember apartheid, right? Like this is a really horrible thing. And when I was younger and I was trying to figure out what kind of political being I wanted to be, I was too lazy to actually protest, but I had enough money to buy t-shirts. So I had this free South Africa shirt that meant a whole lot to me. All right, so that was then. This is the big smoke, and um, so the whole book is about the first African-American heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson. Um, he won the heavyweight title in 1908 by beating a guy named Tommy Burns, and uh, he, was, he was like a 21st century athlete at the turn of the, of the 20th century, right? So he had gold teeth, 
kept his head shaved. He had, like would change clothes three or four times a day. Did these fabulous outfits. He always he always played to reporters. You know, he was, he was one click away from call, you know, talking about himself in third person. You know, um, he uh, he was married to a, a white woman when this was only legal in like five states. Um, he had two white mistresses, and so you can imagine that this kind of figure in 1908 would be incredibly problematic for a lot of people. Um, his parents were slaves, so he's the first generation after slavery, um, and was able to become the most famous athlete in the world. Uh, he's an incredible figure. I mean, he also is very complicated in a lot of ways, and somehow, you know, ahead of his time and also of his time in some of the worst ways possible. And so I'm going to read uh, maybe three poems from this, and they'll all be in the voice of Jack Johnson. Um, but in the book, his wife has poems, his mistresses have poems. There are different people who speak in the book to kind of balance out Jack Johnson's version of what happens. Um, all right. So this is a, a poem called Battle Royale. <coughs> Back then, they chain a bear in the middle of the bear garden and let the dogs loose. Iron chains around a bear's neck won't slow him too much. A, a bear will always make short work of a dog. Shakespeare said Sackerson did it more than 20 times to dogs and wildcats alike. And since most creatures are naturally afraid of bears, there wouldn't always be much of a show in the bear garden. So the handler sometimes put the bear's eyes out or took his teeth to make the fight more sporting. I believe you need eyes more than you need teeth in a fight, but losing either makes a bear a little less mean. Once baiting was against this law, some smart somebody figured colleges would fight just as hard if hungry enough. So they rounded up the skinniest of us, had us stripped of trousers, then blindfolded us before the fight. They turned us in hard circles a few times on the ring steps like a motor car engine before pushing us between the ropes. When the bell rang, it seemed like I got hit from eight directions. I didn't know where those punches came from, but I swung so hard, my shoulder hadn't been right since, because the man said, only the last darkie on his feet gets a meal. Prize fighter. I love horses because they will outrun the fastest man. They're majestic, as stately as a Saturday woman before a party. Horses smell like what it means to be fast. Sweat and gravel kicked up on early morning runs. The in and out of breath like gravel in tired lungs. I groomed and raced horses from Texas to Philadelphia till one broke my leg bone with a back kick. Thanks to that break, I can't ride anymore, but even if I could, we got these automobiles now, and they can carry us a mile a minute. I'm buying the fastest one of these things I can find when I get my money together. Cause I'm like an automobile in the ring. My fists work like cranked up engines. I got the kind of elasticity other fighters dream about when I put them to sleep on the canvas. When I clinch a man, it's like being swaddled in forgiveness. When I hook a man, it's like being hit by frustration. I can't tell if these horses are happy or confounded by this new means of locomotion, but I can say with certainty, my prize fighting cohorts are decidedly dissatisfied by my presence. That's a direct quote, decidedly dissatisfied by my presence. And this dude quit school in third grade and um, taught himself how to play classical viol, taught, him how, you know, taught himself how to read poetry, he would recite. Shakespeare was his favorite poet. He'd recite Shakespeare as part of these shows he would do. Incredibly um, interesting man. And at the same time, people were accusing him of not even being human because he's black. 
So maybe I'll read maybe I'll read two more. Um, I haven't I've been so far gone trying to finish this uh, this new book. I hadn't been in touch with these poems like I used to. So I told you he had gold teeth. So maybe I'll read this poem about his teeth. Feels to me like if somebody has gold fronts, you have no choice but to, to write a poem about it. Um, all right. So this poem is called Gold Smile. And it's got an epigraph. Like I said, it's got an epigraph from Shakespeare. Um, teeth, haddest thou in thy head when thou was born to signify thou camest to bite the world. And that's from Henry VI. They call teeth dent in France. And they make sense the way teeth do what they do to bacon and shoulders and cakes. The French word for gold is or. So when the folks in Paris see my smile, it sounds like what happens when I punch a door. Dense door. Dense door, the French children say when I open wide. Dense door, Etta said when she locked herself in the powder room. Tommy Burns said dense door when I was hooking him in to asking for forgiveness. His people back in Canada would have said the exact same thing if they were in Sydney to witness our spectacle. I told Tommy the only reason I got these gold uppers was to make every bite of my food twice as expensive as it used to be. Yeah, a character. All right, so this is, I'm going to read one more. This is the last poem in the book. So Jack Johnson's favorite um, composer was uh, Verde. And Il Travatore was his favorite piece of music. And so when I was doing, you know, it took me eight years to write this book. And when I was researching it, I, I just could not hear it. Like I was trying really hard to, to get into to Il Travatore. I really wanted to feel it. And I couldn't for like two years. And then one day it just kind of clicked. And it started to make a, a totally different kind of sense to me. But what he would do is he had this, he had this valet, this guy named Gaston, who was uh, white. And it, which he, he thought was funny to have this white guy as a valet anyway. But he had this, he had this guy, Gaston, who would bring a gramophone with them, like when he would train. So, you know, it's like this enormous thing and you crank it and it plays the music. And so Jack Johnson would make this guy, Gaston, carry around this gramophone playing Il Travatore while he was training. <laughs> it's like, you know, the first boom box or whatever. Yeah. In this, in this poem, I mentioned Etta, Etta's his, his wife. O Travatore. The first time I heard the aria, it was like sun up after the great storm, the woman's voice rising, then rising more as if the want of it all wouldn't allow her another breath. Like road work when you've punched yourself out, like Tommy Burns catching my gut hook, like the first I saw of Etta, like the sound of the crowd in Reno when Jeffries couldn't go on, like going up the steps of the Cafe the Champion after a crash of gunshots in Etta's room, like finding Etta on the floor, a hail of blood getting bigger by the minute, like the nurses not nursing, but pointing at the gun still hot in Etta's own hands, like realizing Etta's still breathing, whispering a libretto on the heels of her last breath, you did this, Papa, you did all of this. So keep an eye out in about a year or two. I'm gonna, I've been working on this graphic novel with this French illustrator that sort of finishes Jack Johnson, like the, my part of the story I wanted to tell of Jack Johnson. Um, it's taken so much time. Uh, it's too many words. I don't know how you guys do it with this fiction. Like it's just so many words. Oh my God. Like I thought, you know, I don't know. I, when I agreed to do it, I thought, hey, yeah, sure, I could write a script. 
that was like four years ago <laughs> and, I, and I finally just finished it so anyway, it's going to be cool all right so I'm going to read just for a little while from this from this new book um yeah, I, I don't even know what to, I've never read from it. I don't know what to even say about it. Um, so I'm going to just read. All right. Is it okay if I just read from the front and read a few poems? Okay. So, all right. It's all in Indianapolis. It's called Starstruck Blacks. Again, winter in Indianapolis's 30th Street Bridge is salty over the iced-up White River, and above both salt and ice, stars constellate into, black, uh, into backlit animals and ancient heroes posturing on the edges of the Earth's afro as ev inevitable as morning frost and morning hair after a park bench sleep. And even more syncopated lights move on the horizon lowly the way cop lights do whenever black people collect outside of church. All this fast stereotyping like the manicured fingers in the steno pool where those same cops linger, badges shining and hats under arms before testifying that they shot in self-defense. Back at the bridge, two brothers are peeing into the monochromatic current, backs graffitied by a great migration of taillights. One brother stares north, way up to Saturn, and says, man, I bet this water is cold. The other bre brother gravitates in the same unreachable direction and says, yeah, and I bet it's deep too. And later, one of the star-eyed neighbors spills white all over the carpet again and leans into it like sniffing a fish's ear. The other neighbor is Pisces reclining, so and so on the couch in Atari's glow. All these habits from Vietnam blamed on Agent Orange, heroin and gunplay first, cocaine after. Not every fatherless black could object to war like Sun Ra did. Not every fatherless black could get kicked out of the army before the fighting started like Richard Pryor did. Hardly any fatherless blacks could skip Vietnam as far out from this space as any black boy will get. Listen, the neighbor's cigarette is about to burn into her hair violently, the same way it burned a socket in their unfortunate shag rug in the living room. Listen, we have to get off this pockmarked planet. Read between the lines. 213B opens brightly like a newly discovered planet on the front page of a paper nobody reads, and Garrett rolls out of that revelatory linoleum left half of his afro as flat as the tire on his mother's car back when she used to try to drive us to school, cheap snick of the door locking behind him like somebody trying an empty lighter out, then red brick of cold air into hot lungs, carriage house east where menthols cough the same octave as windows slamming shut, and outside those windows, somebody's radio's already popping static. The morning moon looks like part of a whole note. That's when Garrett and I downstroke past one, PS 113 past triplicated sections of brick, coupled rows of townhouses facing each other like they're about to get into it, past snow-drifted dumpsters and beneath those frozen silhouettes, spray-painted tags and misspelled love letters I couldn't decipher in the summer. Garrett has been listening to Richard Pryor again and says, fuck those beat-ass motherfuckers at school, Jack, and I agree, too scared to disagree, walking past a mimeograph of Mickey Mouse smiling as he flips Iran, the bird, in the landlord's window. We threw up the same middle finger salutation to the bus driver, and he gave it right back to us in a crescendo of steering-wheeled knuckles. 
So we ignored him and our stop and kept walking carriage house style, right hand skimming from chest down to waist and behind the back like a swimmer cupping water in a city pool. Cue sirens snagging morning air like hurtful Afro picks. Cue the barking of early morning walks to school in the snow. We forward leaned into our strut like disenchanted street lamps alternating between our side and the fenced porches on the other. Rotted slats breaking like teeth right after the punch, right where Garrett's cousin, the same one who punched us every time we got close to her, leaned into the winter brick. She put two-fingered guns to her temples when she saw us, smoked out patches of skin around her mouth like a raw sun rising. So it kind of goes on like that. This is called How to Choose the Next City. I realized when I was reading this, when it, you know, because when it showed up, I made myself the, like, the biggest drink ever. It was like a, you know, it was shameful. It was like some big, like one of those big gulp cups. <laughs> and sat down and read through the whole thing. And I realized that I got some issues, you know, <laughs> with where I grew up. And, um, you know, my mother, my dad was a heroin addict. He came back from Vietnam addicted. And um, so he was of, of no use. So my mom's trying to figure out how to take care of three kids by herself. And that's sort of the umbrella of this book in a lot of ways. Um, and how you learn, like how a person learns who they're supposed to be in the world without role models. I don't know if that makes sense. Like my mom was one kind of role model for me, but there were no black men around, like none. Like nobody had a dad. And that's really tragic, but I didn't want it to be just that. So this is called How to Choose the Next City. On another warm winter day, I'm stuck on the court's fringes again like Garrett's mother was after she tried to run her boyfriend over while he stretched out near half court. She missed him, but left her car there anyway, idling and popping until the gas ran out. We all laughed when her boyfriend rolled out of the way, then chased after her, apologizing for someone. I'm on the outs again, too. Follow through fingers hitched below my bottom rib like a name buckle made out of knuckles. Borrow a ball parked in my elbow crook in Indianapolis. Cracked backdrop of two, maybe three taller buildings unrepentant above the tangles of empty trees where the older ballers smoke joints between runs. My other hand, wrapped around the austere questions of cities we could move to if only I could grow and get my jumper right. Cincinnati, Chicago, almost Brooklyn, nearly Detroit, away from Indiana nearsightedness, away from hooping and slippery church shoes and getting picked the one after last. Always next, always stuck on the crest of the court while the real ballers dribbled behind relentless smack talk about busted jumpers, knockoff shoes, mamas and their respective fatnesses, all tangled in the sweaty pageantry as glimmering and, glimmering and sticky as the mall jewelry they borrowed from each other to shine up for the girls, pretending they weren't watching. A little city of gleaming gallantry that I was too broke to get a spot in. So this poem has a quote in it. Y'all remember the Little Rascals, right? So there's the Little Rascals with alfalfa and everybody, and then there's the other one, the one before that. Like the original Little Rascals, it had Stymie. It was this like, little black kid with a bald head, and he wore a stovetop. Right? So I've got a quote in this poem from Stymie. All right. I don't know what I'll do. I'll 
like point or something so you know this is the quote I mean it's going to become really clear when I do it all right? so this is called Black Swinging Low my black father's absent jurisdiction includes the city of skin I'm in it includes nickel plate and pinky rings fist picking cassinis one drop in codes and absence of attention praying to go to orbit in a space shuttle where everyone looks the same in a space suit from Earth, interstellar things still look black and white through a telescope. The moon, Mars, Voyager 2, it doesn't matter. In Indiana, we got one channel, TV 40, the church channel. Little rascals and stymies meticulously clean-shaven head is shined up as a Buick handle when the passenger door shuts. I wish my pappy was out of jail. I wished I had some chicken. Then leave it to beavers, statutory whiteness cuffed between corduroy preachers, one after another in semicircles. Something happened between those weekday sermons and I was just like all the other needy congregants, lying on my bird chest at bed, peeking out the behind the interlocked hands at the rusting coils under the top bunk, curling like black and white galaxies. I wished I had some chicken. All right. So there's more, and then my mom married my stepdad who was the vice president of Blue Cross Blue Shield <laughs> and then we moved to the suburbs so this is in no way a, a, a autobiography in that fashion but it struck me as being an odd experience to grow up so poor and then all of a sudden not be poor at all like I mean on Tuesday there's no food and then on Wednesday is anything you want it's like winning the lottery so I'm going to read a couple of poems um, about the suburbs, and then I'll read one last one. Okay. <laughs> so in the suburbs, everybody has a dad. So that was a hell of a thing. And I'd never been to a barbecue before. So, all right. So maybe I'll read, I'll read that. Okay, this is called Record Changer. You guys remember these things? Like, the people who had LPs know exactly, exactly. You put them on there and they just drop, right? Okay. All right. Record changer. To the left of the neighbor's barbecue, variations of the same house ringed by the same foliage. Adolescent bushes, their green tufts of low-lying sky. Dads, red-faced and bearded, in the back someplace, turning pure meat over hot coals. The record players inside, boxed-up speakers propped in the windows. To the right... Across the still-seated yard are two-story, just as square and impeccable as the rest. We want Prince, but rumors keeps restarting itself. <laughs> now here you go again, you say. One neighbor asks, now where'd you come from again? And we say California, like Fleetwood Mac. And nobody asks anything else. And because nobody hunts for dinner in the suburbs, we put down our implements of half-step and appetite, sidestep the moon as it descends into a whole plate full of charred thighs and wings. We collectifies the back-in-the-day's way as tenaciously as chicken legs undress themselves at a cul-de-sac party, then raise the stripped bones to history. Out here, there isn't any, so history is whatever we want it to be. This is no joke. They, this guy had four copies of rumors and he just stacked it up and it was just like a side b side just one after another and we were like oh maybe we were like let's go back let's go back to carriage house where they have real music um okay and this is the next day it's called strange celestial roads there's a father sleeping it off 
in every master bedroom of the cul-de-sac the morning after, so Saturday morning is a snooze. The moon is still out, eyeballing the quiet streaks like Sun Ra did his orchestra. Somebody has to be a father figure for all those musical notes. No school buses to huff after, no mothers yelling their children onward. The only weekend noise is us, kicking rocks. So bored we can't hear each other on a celestial swirl of asphalt that will be a playground one day. We stand, right feet extended in unison like booze men, rock after rock, arcing at sorry angles toward the open bar that hopes to dangle four swings. Some rocks go through, some miss as we balance on concrete meant to backstop hot scotch and echo knock-knock jokes. Not somebody's father yelling, you got to be kidding me, after he opens the property tax bill. These bars were placed here for some other future kids to be dragged from by big ears or hair matted necks, back from the, to the unavoidable arguments, the fist-to-face noises and the sweet bleeding saxophones that come after. So I'm just gonna read um, two more. If you're not getting this, there's a theme. There are a lot of poems called Something Blacks in this book. Originally, the book was going to be called Collectible Blacks, but I didn't write that book. I wrote Map to the Stars. So. Um, this poem's called Intergalactic Blacks, and um, it's about Guy and S. Bluford, who is the first black astronaut to actually get to outer space. There were others who trained, but he was the very first to, to, to get on a space shuttle in 1983, August 21st. Guy and S. Bluford, right? My editor said I should interview him, and I was like, nah. <laughs> I'm just going to have this imaginary version of him in my book instead. <laughs> and all right. So this is called Intergalactic Blacks. Guy and S. Bluford doesn't fit into the astronaut tradition any more than side A of sounds of Earth gilded in that second spinning Voyager space probe parlays the real ruckus we make in our earthen hustle of engine contrition. Nigga used as noun and adjective again in Nasha hallways. Sounds as beautiful though with its thin skin of golden language. Where to begin? Where is the smile and redress of planets? Where are those intergalactic Star Wars spaces without races? Hello. What have we here, says Lando Calrissian from his cloud city. And he's not even in the astronaut team portrait. Solo brother Blueford and his colonel outfit, soul brother number one, ringed in whiteness like the loneliest dot on a die. So then I just read the last, I'll read the title poem as the last thing. Um, thanks for being so patient. Like I said, I have no idea what to do with these poems yet. They are frightening to me. Because they're honest, you know? Like, it's not easy to write about being poor, even when you're not. And that's the thing, isn't it? Nobody who's poor has time to be telling you about what it's like to be poor. They're busy trying to eat. So, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, trying to, trying to get this done. And so what we get is stuff like this, which is, and later, when I actually had a little bit of space, I could write these poems thinking about what that meant. So I tried really, really hard to have no um, wisdom whatsoever in this book. What I mean by that is I, I tried really hard to keep this in 1985 or 1987. There's, there's not a moment in this book that happens after the, in, after the book's bracket. Because it doesn't matter what I've learned. It doesn't make any difference at all. So it's called Map to the Stars. A Schwinn right away. Eagledale Plaza, 
Busted shopping strip of old walkways, crooked parking spaces nicked like the lines on the sides of somebody's mom barbered head. Anchored by the Piccadilly Disco where a shootout was guaranteed every weekend. Coffin stars shot from sideways guns, shiny enough to light the way for anyone willing to keep a head up long enough to see. Not me. I bought the star map shirt for 15 cents at the Value Village next to the Piccadilly. The shirt was polyester with flyaway collars outlined in the forgotten astronomies of disco. The shirt's washed out points of light arranged in horse and hero shapes and I rocked it in places neither horse nor hero hung out. Polyester is made from polythelene and catches fire easily like wings near a thrift store sun. Polythelene used in shampoo bottles and gun cases and those grocery sacks skidding like upended stars across the parking lot. There are more kinds of stars in this universe than salt granules on drive through fries. Too many stars lessening and swelling with each pedal pump away from the value village as the beaming billboard above spotlights first one DUI attorney and then another who speaks Spanish so the sky above is constantly chattering like the biggest disco ball ever. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>